This is episode 202 of the Inner Fight Podcast. It starts with one thing. I don't know why. It doesn't even matter how hard you try. Keep that in mind. I'm designed to to explain it. Welcome to episode 202 of the Inner Fight Podcast. My name is Marcus Smith, founder of InnerFight.com. And in this episode, we bring you Yusuf Tukan in Inner Talks number nine. No matter where you are in the world, thanks for tuning in. Let's jump right in. Good morning. Welcome to Inner Talks number nine. Thanks a lot for everyone who's here for taking time out of your morning to be with us. We will finish on time. Hopefully, you'll have a little bit of time to ask some questions as well. I hope. I was thinking about this one, and I was thinking about some of the speakers that we've had. They've done some truly amazing things, and it made me think, like as humans, how awesome we can be. But it also made me think that a lot of the time, what we speak about, definitely within these walls and, and a lot up here, is, is these almost feats of human endurance and life transformations. And I think they're all incredible stories. But then I was thinking, well, if we could do something different, that would be absolutely amazing. And this sort of happened. I got an email from Yusuf a few months ago and he wanted to speak to me about some things and we sort of sat down in the corner over here and we started talking and I was like I wanted to know more about him it was weird I when he sent me the email I thought I'd met him before but I hadn't and he sort of started talking I started asking him things I was sat there and he was talking to me for about 30 minutes I'm just going oh my god this is like totally awesome and I really hope he left that meeting with what he wanted to get out of it I definitely left with a lot of very cool ideas so it's a real pleasure to have him here today um, he's he's done some incredible things which he's going to tell you about but I think when we sort of challenge the status quo in no matter what we're doing some people are able to express themselves through sport Others are really successful in the business world, and others just get on and, and, and don't care and just be totally awesome. And I think what it says to me is that there's an incredible human being in, in everyone, and I'm just delighted that we've got Yusuf here today to share something with us. So, ladies and gentlemen, Yusuf Tukan. How nice. I actually first discovered Inner Fight at Inner Talks 5 when I came here to see... Um, Marcus and Tom talk about Marathon de Sable, and I pretty much live here now, so, so this is great. So thank you, and I see, and I see a lot of my friends here who don't normally come to this gym, so welcome, everyone. So, I am your typical Arab. I was born in England. I have a funny American accent. My dad's Palestinian. My mother's Lebanese. I've lived in five or six different countries around the world. But for the last 20 years, Dubai has been my home. So on behalf of all the Arabs in the Middle East, I bid you welcome, and I say to you, Assalamu alaikum. Interestingly, this is also the same way that Arabs say goodbye. 
which doesn't make a lot of sense, say hello and goodbye in the same way. But for any of you who watch the news, you know that kind of what happens in the Middle East doesn't really make much sense these days anyway. But no generation has seen change the way mine has. If we go back in time, not too far, but just to like my 16th, 17th birthday when I was a teenager growing up in Jordan, my media universe consisted of two TV stations owned by the government, one newspaper, and one radio station. That was my entire media universe as a teenager growing up in the Middle East. And if we fast forward 20 years to today and we think about the world we live in now, think about how much that's changed. I mean, every single one of us is walking around with a piece of glass in our hands that weigh about 200 grams. But with this piece of glass, I can access every book ever written, every film ever made, every bit of music ever published. I can see every star in the sky, every inch of the earth. I can order stuff online. I can get a job. Hey, you can get a girlfriend one of these these days. So it's pretty amazing how much things have changed. But there's been a constant tension in the Middle East between governments, brands, and individuals between this growth of media and free speech. You see, Arabs love a good conversation. Before Facebook, before Twitter, before Snapchat, you couldn't shut us up anyway. We've got an opinion on everything. Life, love, religion, sex, marriage. We've always had an opinion. But Arab governments like control. And we've constantly seen this tension between freedom and communication and control. So, for example, you can see here, somebody's blacked out the boobies on the front of this magazine, the, the black marker pen of the censor. I mean, this has always been with us throughout history. This, for example, is the Arabic and English version of the same magazine on the bookshelves in Dubai. But even this offers you interesting creative opportunities. So, for example, this is an ad for Wonderbra that came out a couple of years ago here in Dubai. So there's been three big changes that have really changed, transformed the landscape of media here in the Middle East. The first one was the satellite dishes. And I remember when these first started turning up in the early 90s when we were teenagers. And suddenly, I just didn't have to watch those two bad TV stations anymore. Suddenly, we had CNN, we had BBC, we had access to hundreds of new news stations and sources. But even this makes governments nervous. So, for example, in Saudi Arabia, they actually banned the importation of satellite dishes in 1992. But the reality is you can't stop people from getting access to whatever they want. Because despite the ban in 1992, by 1998, there was a million satellite dishes on the roofs of homes in Saudi Arabia for people to be able to watch BBC and CNN. But of course, being a teenage boy, watching CNN and BBC weren't the only things that satellite television brought to us. And so I remember when our parents would go to sleep, we'd all kind of creep downstairs and watch Italian game shows with names like Tutti Frutti. So the satellites were the first big change. The second one was the mobile phones. What was special about this phone? The camera. This was the first kind of regularly available mobile phone that had a camera. And this terrified people. Like I remember my mother used to go to a lot of very traditional Arabic weddings here where the men and the women celebrate separately. And because the women are on their own, they can take off their hijabs, they can be a bit more free, they can dance around. My mom wasn't allowed to take her mobile phone to weddings for a while for fear that maybe somebody would catch something untoward. And I even remember, I used to do a bit of work with Motorola at the time, and my client actually put out all the phones for 2003, and he was like, and this one has a camera, and this one has a camera, and this one has a camera, and cameras, but they've banned cameras in Saudi Arabia on phones, what are we going to do? And he went, Yusuf, sooner or later, every phone on earth is going to have a camera, and what's Saudi Arabia going to do, ban every phone in the world? And sure enough, mobile phones with cameras were unbanned in 2004, and today Saudi Arabia has the third highest penetration of smartphones of any country in the world. But the third big change 
was the internet and the way this really transformed things. Because if satellite dishes made it impossible for governments to control what we accessed, the internet made it impossible for governments to control what we said. And this was the real turning point. This was the real kind of bit when the, when the toothpaste came out of the tube and couldn't be put back in. Um, this is a great joke that came up in Egypt just before the revolution that says, how do you know when you've made it as a blogger? You're in jail. And this, you know, it's pretty funny, but the thing is, like, this was the reality, and unfortunately still is in a lot of places. I mean, in 2010, just before the Arab Spring, um, Reporters Without Borders put out a report called Enemies of the Internet, the countries that were the worst offenders when it came to free speech and access to the Internet. And look at the list. Of the 11 countries, you know, Cuba, North Korea, and China, four of them are Middle Eastern countries, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Syria, and Tunisia. And what happened in 2011 to these four countries? Widespread revolution that overthrew the government, widespread post-protest in the street, the start of that horrific civil war that they're still living through, and a revolution that overthrew the government. So the reality is no matter how much you try to block free speech or control people, you can't actually do it. And so here we are today, kind of five years beyond the Arab Spring. And, you know, for better or worse, you know, things have happened since the Arab Spring. But the reality is we're faced with a new internet generation today that's really where the world has really changed around us. And this young Arab digital generation are defined by three things. We're connected, we're young, and we're confused. So let's talk about us being connected. We have the highest social media usage of any region in the world. Twitter has seen 600% growth in Saudi Arabia. Facebook, 80 million users in the Middle East. 50 million of them access it every day. We have double the average global video consumption. This is, this is a group of people that are desperate for good original content. Same with YouTube, 510 million video views a day in the Middle East, 26 million um, hours of YouTube. Saudi Arabia has the highest internet usage of YouTube of any country in the world, seven videos a day. Because the reality is these people are desperate for content, desperate for good entertainment, and the garbage we get on bad Arabic government TV just doesn't work anymore. And then Instagram as well. You know, you can see the UAE, 1.1 million active users. Saudi Arabia has 6 million. Bahrain has 1 million active users. And again, if you've been to Bahrain, you know it's not that big. And so what's interesting now is the way in which social media has transformed the relationships between so many different people. So for example, this is Queen Rania, the Queen of Jordan, and she actually lists her Instagram profile as saying a, a mom with a really cool day, with a really cool day job. You know, so again, un, it would be unthinkable 10 years ago for the queen of a country to publicly put herself out there and make herself available to people in this way. And obviously the most emblematic one, you know, of the royals in the Middle East is, is Sheikh Hamdan, you know, the, the crown prince of Dubai. You know, he's got three and a half million followers now, and he just posts himself just doing awesome shake stuff all day. But it's not just celebrities, you know, it's also people like this, for example, this is a guy called Humaid al-Buqaysh, and I put him up because he, he confirms the two worst stereotypes about rich Arabs. The first is that we all drive Ferraris and Lamborghinis, and the second is that we all have exotic pets. And so his Instagram feed is him and his Ferraris and his exotic pets. But it's also transforming society. So, for example, this is, this, is a, this is an Instagram account that used to exist called Sheep Sell, where you could actually buy sheep online in Kuwait. So if you wanted to buy a sheep, you could go here, you could check out what sheep are available, and it's like hashtag Kuwait, hashtag animals, hashtag Amazon. And if you wanted to buy a sheep, you could BBM him, or you could message this guy and buy a sheep. But you also see things like this. So this is vanilla sukkar. This is a sweet shop here in the UAE where this woman sells um, sweets online. And interestingly, she says, you know, WhatsApp or SMS, no phone calls, please. So this is a woman working from home who's built an entire cottage industry where her shop front is an Instagram page. And the only sales channel she has is WhatsApp and instant messenger. 
This is interesting, and because it's even transforming society. This is a lady called Al-Kattaba Umm Rashid. And, and for those of you who don't know, that Al-Kattaba is a very old, very traditional concept where if you live in a village, Al-Kattaba is the old woman who has the book. And she's got the list of all the young men and all the young women who want to get married. And if you want to get married, you go to the Kattaba and you say, like, I've got my daughter, she's 22. She's, and she goes, oh, oh. I've got just the boy for you. Even this most traditional of concepts has now been adapted to Instagram where you can actually send her your specifications and she'll post them online for you. And so you can see this woman here. It's a bit hard to read, but she's 22. She's from Al Ain. She's currently studying in university. She's religious. She's, very, she's looking for a very kind man. She's 157 centimeters tall. She's 75 kilos, but she is on a diet. And so you see how, so you see how even our most traditional aspects of our life are now being put and translated into these incredible new mediums. And we're young, really, really young. Um, 68% of the MENA population is under the age of 34. 55% of Saudis are under the age of 25. 51% of Egyptians are under the age of 25. So what's amazing is you've got an entire population of young people that have grown up with YouTube and Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and all these things, but the reality they see on their screens is so different from the reality they see outside on the streets of their life where there's still such a disconnect between where they're going and kind of where they currently are. And so it's no wonder that we're confused. And we're really quite conflicted as Arabs inside. If you look at the Arab Youth Survey, this is a survey of 3,500 Arabs aged between 18 and 24 that's run by a PR agency every year to gauge the mood of Arab youth. Here's what they ask them. So they said, for example, which of the following is closest to your view? In 2011, 83% believed that traditional values mean a lot to me and ought to be preserved for generations to come. But 17% said that traditional values are outdated and I'm keen to embrace modern values. Look at the way in which this number has changed over the last four years. Today we are split almost 50-50 as Arabs, right down the middle, between wanting to be very modern and wanting to be traditional. And it's no wonder then that any, any kind of Western girl who comes to Dubai and gets an Arabic boyfriend automatically catches a disease called MMD. My Muhammad is different. Because they go, oh, he's so modern, he's so cool, he's so open-minded. It's like, no, 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 no. He's going to marry a nice Sunni girl like his mother told him to in the end. So beware of the MMDs, ladies. But I am different. Honest, I am different. <laughs> but even our language is under threat. You know, for Arabs, the one thing we can actually agree on is the importance of our language, and, and we identify with it. And, but even this is under threat today. So you can see here today, we see how we view Arabic. Today, if you ask people, is Arabic central to your national identity? 73% of us still agree. But do we believe that Arabic is losing its value? 47% of us do. L knowing English can advance my career more than Arabic? Over 60% believe that's the case today. So even our language, our most core unifying aspect of our culture is under threat today. And probably no country symbolizes the, the, the kind of the feeling of being young, connected, and confused the way Saudi Arabia does. It's a very young population. It's a population of people that are desperate for change, but it's a place where still McDonald's has an entrance for the singles and an entrance for the families where people are very segregated. And even our most traditional institutions are under threat or, or kind of being changed by the future. So for example, many of you know the Muslim's duty to go to Hajj and do the seven rounds around the Kaaba as part of our pilgrimage. Even this is being updated now, and I hope you can see this guy on his hoverboard cruising around the Kaaba doing his seven rounds. And it's amazing because this actually kicked off a huge debate to say, is this haram? Is this halal? Is this okay? Is he actually doing his duty? But again, you know, even our most traditional institutions are being kind of upended by new technologies today.
Um, and this is interesting because what you find today, even, even courtship has moved into the modern era. So you can see here young men actually put their BBM pins on the back of their cars. So if you're driving down the street and you see a nice boy, you can get his BBM pin and you can message him and be like, yo, what's up? And so, so they're young and they're connected and they're confused and they're really, really bored. And so what you find them doing nowadays is finding more and more interesting ways to entertain themselves. So this is them ghostwriting, for example. <laughs> So yeah, more and more interesting ways to keep yourself entertained, including things like this. Um, this is called shell, where what you do is you pop a wheelie in your car and you kind of drive it and see how far you can go before the car comes back down. But even this isn't enough. Even this has to be turned up to 11, where you see nowadays they'll actually get to the point where they'll actually take the wheels off cars and do all sorts of crazy dangerous stunts like this. I've actually seen a video of people lighting and smoking a shisha on top of a car while it's on two wheels. So again, young connected, confused, and desperate for opportunities for entertainment. But even with this, there's been an incredible opportunity today to create new ways to entertain young people. And so what social media has done is it's given rise to a new breed of celebrities that have come out of nowhere and are connecting with this audience in a completely new way. Now, when I say celebrities, I don't mean like celebrities, like Pharrell is a celebrity, right? You know, he's like a big international pop star. He probably has like a media office and PR people. He's got 7.9 million followers on Twitter. He's a celebrity. But not when compared to Dr. Sheikh Mohammed Al-Arifi, a conservative Islamic scholar who has 13.2 million followers on Twitter. So, and I guarantee you this guy does not have a PR department or a press office. But what's quite amazing is that this is somebody who's a very traditional man taking the most traditional of subjects but adapting it to a completely new modern audience that's still desperate to connect with people but are using these new channels. So what you see here is that this Sheikh has 5.5 million more fans than Pharrell and 5.8 million more than Pope Francis. But so there's so much opportunity today to connect with these people in new and entertaining ways. So for example, there's a group of Saudi entertainers called U-Turn who've created this channel and this audience of about 24 million Saudis of, of you know, Snapchat followers, YouTube fans, Facebook fans, and they're creating constant bits of new entertainment designed for this young Saudi audience. So here's a clip um, from a comedian called Badr Saleh. <laughs> هذه بس عشان عشان يعني الموسم الرابع فابغى حطيت كلوز اب دايموند التبييض الفوري. اها حطيته على شعرك كمان؟ So this is Badr Saleh who has a YouTube show called Ish Ali and he has an incredible audience today of people who are you know, really, really keen to engage with him. And if you see the numbers, they're really quite staggering. So if you compare him to other comedians on YouTube, last week tonight with John Oliver has 2.6 million fans on YouTube. Saturday Night Live has 1.8 million. He's got 2.68 million fans on YouTube. This guy is bigger than John Oliver on YouTube, which is really quite incredible. What's really funny is that I gave this talk at Cannes Lions this summer, which is like the Oscars of advertising. And the day before I traveled to the US, I was having dinner at the address and wound up sitting next to him. And I was like, dude, Badr Saleh, I'm talking about you tomorrow. And he went, really? Where? I went, Cannes Lions. And he went, what's that? 
Because this guy really, like, they literally don't know the rules. I'm like, it's the Oscars of advertising. He's like, oh, that's cool. Can you send me a clip? I'd love to see it. But that's the amazing thing is that these guys are completely disrupting traditional advertising and communications. Because in the old days, if I was a brand and I wanted to reach a consumer, I would brief a creative agency who would make a thing, who would then give it to my media agency, who would then go buy the media from Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, whoever, and hopefully that translates into some likes and views. What's amazing is that these guys are producing the content, but also have the instant audience to connect with people. So these are amazing ways to be creative now in places like Saudi Arabia. But despite this, not everybody gets it right because quite often foreign brands will come to the Middle East like, oh, these Arabs, like, oh, they're just all so conservative and they can't stand the sight of women. Let's just go full conservative when it comes to advertising to these people. And probably the best example of this was Ikea four years ago who unveiled their first ever um, annual home catalog for Saudi Arabia. And, you know, these Arabs, like, they can't stand the sight of women. Let's just Photoshop all the women out of the catalog. And so what you got, you could see here, is this is the original version of the IKEA catalog, and this is the Saudi version with all the women photoshopped out of the actual catalog. And the world went nuts. Because first of all, all of us, the Arabs were like, dude, really? Like, come on. But even this got picked up like, by all these kind of major publications to be like, this is ridiculous. And somebody actually created a Tumblr called IKEA got 99 problems, but a bitch ain't one, where they actually took really iconic photographs of women and replaced them with IKEA furniture. <laughs> As you can see here, this is, you know, this is the attack on Osama bin Laden's compound and Hillary Clinton turns into a chest of drawers. So that's the thing is that it doesn't have to be like this, guys. You could actually have a lot more fun. But what's really interesting is that social media isn't just being used for marketing and entertainment. It's actually being used to really kind of drive forward a lot of social issues as well. And so here's a really good example of that. We start in Saudi Arabia. In a brave act of defiance, at least dozens of women got behind the wheel in Saudi Arabia on Saturday to protest the conservative kingdom's ban on women driving, despite warnings that anyone disturbing public order would be dealt with forcefully. And they were. At least 16 Saudi women were arrested and fined around 80 U.S. dollars each, according to police. Each woman also had to sign a pledge to respect the kingdom's laws. And videos like this of women filming themselves driving made the rounds, although the numbers were lower than expected after activists received calls from the Interior Ministry asking them to promise not to drive on Saturday. Now, last month, this Saudi cleric, Sheikh Saleh bin Saad al-Lahidan, even went so far as to say, women who drive risk damaging their ovaries and will have children with birth defects. But one video in particular has gone viral, and it features absolutely no women and no driving. Three Saudi men got together to produce this Bob Marley-inspired satirical video called No Woman, No Drive. Take a look. No woman, no drive. Say, say, say I remember when you used to sit in the family car, back seat. Uh, 
It was amazing. I mean, this thing got 13 million views. But what was really funny was everybody on both sides of the argument actually thought he was singing for them. So even the really conservative people in Saudi Arabia were like, look at this young man telling his sister not to drive. What an example he is to the others. And the rest of us are like, come on. But that's the thing is that, you know, you can do this because you couldn't possibly talk about this in the newspaper or on TV because that's when you cross those invisible red lines that the governments put up sometimes. But on, on the internet, kind of anything goes. So let's talk a little bit about the UAE because obviously, you know, we're all from here. And I think really the change has, nowhere has the change been more apparent than it has been here. So for example, listen to Muhammad, age 56, talk about his childhood in the UAE. Uh, so life was very simple. There was no water. There's no electricity, uh, no running water, no electricity. I think electri- probably running water came at the age of 13 for me. Electricity probably at 15 at that time. Running water at 13, electricity at 15. This story is not uncommon for that generation of Emirati men, but it really becomes quite incredible when you think that Muhammad, who got electricity and water at the age of 15, built the tallest building in the world 40 years later. So this is the amazing thing, the speed of change and the pace of ambition that our city has. There's really nothing like it. But with this change comes confusion and comes an inherent tension because things are changing so quickly that people can often feel disconnected from families because of technology. And so here's something we put together for do for Ramadan last year to try to get people to reconnect. This was great, but I think it really captured the sense of the fact that people really do feel that technology is getting in the way of of life sometimes and families. But the UAE's been great. I mean, Dubai is really so good at its own PR and its own publicity. I mean, you think about the publicity that this generated, you know, where you talk about Saudi Arabia, women can't drive. In the UAE, we now have a fleet of Bugattis and Lamborghinis and Ferraris driven by police women, not by police men, which is really quite incredible. But we've actually gotten really good at our own PR as well and actually capturing the stories of our city and using extreme sports and stunts to really kind of tell those stories even better. And so, you know, this is pretty much the most awesome thing I've seen in the last few months.
only Dubai is capable of things like this. Um, the ambition of this city is really a wonder to behold, and I think we're all so lucky to be a part of it. So if you ask me today what I think the best brand being built in the Middle East is today, I think it's the city of Dubai, because the rest of the Middle East is just tearing itself apart and catching fire, and we have things like My Dubai, which become these beautiful showcases of our city and all the amazing things that are happening around us. And I want to talk about Lebanon a little bit, because Lebanon has no shortage of two things, creativity and problems. We have 17 different religions. We haven't had a president for two years. We have over a million Syrian refugees on the streets of Lebanon today. And so when we hear about these European countries, they're like, oh, 3,000 Syrians, what are we going to do with them in Germany? All the Lebanese are like, bitch, please, we've got a million. So this is the thing, is that Lebanon really is, is quite a wonderful and wonderfully dysfunctional place. And when you, quite often when you talk about Beirut, you think about things like this, right? Unfortunately, these are thankfully not as common an everyday part of life, but they're still an occasional occurrence in life. And every time the bomb goes off, and, and a car bomb goes off in Lebanon, one of the first things that happens is that we all try to call each other to make sure we're okay. But if you've ever seen the mobile phone network in Lebanon, it's pretty dodgy. So the bomb goes off, we all try to call each other, we crash the mobile phone network, and then everybody's worried all day. So one very enterprising young lady created an app called I Am Alive, where what you can do is you can actually link your iPhone app to your Twitter and your Facebook account. And every time a bomb goes off in Lebanon, you just take out the app, push a button, and you get, I am alive, hashtag Lebanon, hashtag latest bombing. So it's pretty grim, but pretty creative, I think, and quite entrepreneurial. Um, but that's the thing is that, you know, but the interesting thing in Lebanon is that creativity is being used in such interesting ways and social media is being harnessed to not just promote products, but really to try to drive social change. And so here's a great example. I can't even see what I'm doing anymore. Yes, here's a great example of that. Lebanon, 2014. A wave of domestic violence is spreading across the country, leaving the whole society in shock. Till this day, there is no law in Lebanon to protect women from family violence. Kefa, a leading NGO for women's rights, had drafted a law, but it was ignored by members of parliament for years. Kefa contacts us to seek our help. The parliament is holding a session three days from now. And we must make the law one of their top priorities and ideally pass it with amendments. So let's threaten our MPs with the one weapon that could actually hurt them. Our votes. The equation is simple. Vote for the law. We'll vote for you. Let's turn our thumbs red. The color of blood shed by battered women. Let's invite the women and the men of this country to post their red thumbs on social media. Let's use our campaign to inspire a popular movement. D-Day. MPs are meeting inside the parliament. We are outside on the street, mounting pressure. Everyone, including the mass media, is prohibited from entering the session. But we are able to enter the parliament through social media and reach each and every MP on their mobile while they are voting, leading the president of the parliament to react. For us, nothing can stand in our way. Four hours later, the law is passed. For Kefa, this fight must continue. For all women, this is a giant step to eradicate domestic violence. And the results? Already being felt across the nation. In a country where political accountability is non-existent, the civil society was able to force the legislators to finally do their job. 
It's a wonderful campaign. It's gotten a lot of attention all over the world um, for what, what it achieved. Here's another one that tries to tackle um, a very kind of uniquely Lebanese problem. Lebanese تعبانين كل مشاهد ببيته ما بقى قادر يتحمل فساد المسؤولين في كثير فساد قد ما بدك رشوات موجوده الكذب موجود الناس هيك فجأة على الطرقات بيافطات بتقول شهادات بروفيب الرخص دفاتر سواقة للبيع وغيرها من الإعلانات وفي رقم تليفون العالم فكرت أنه عن جد في صار هل أدي السيرفيس مشرع أما المسؤول عن هذه الإعلانات فيعرف عن نفسه بدكانة البلد دكانة البلد في الجميزي استقطبت الزبائن الذين لم يصدقوا للوهلة الأولى ما يحدث رخصة سوق من دون اختبار أو شهادة بكالوريا من دون اختبار شو في عندك وظائف بالدولة؟ في عندي مالية، في عندي خرجية، في عندي عدلية، في عندي ضمان، في عندي سكة حديد، وفي عندي مطار، عندنا كل شيء، شو طلبك خيي؟ بدي وحدة ضمان اثنين وظائف بالمطار، واحد بكالوريا واحد ضمان غيره هول دفاتر السواقة بالدش شو بدك اياه وطني انترناشونال سيارة دراجي خلوهم نازلة صاروخ بدك تعبشهم بترجاك مشي لي هالمعاملة خلينا نمشي اهلا اهلا تفضل دوموزيل اهلا وسهلا بدك ثلاثة زبوطة وبدي واحد لحكم عليه فيك زبوطة ما فيك رقبتهم كمان اهلا وسهلا فيك تفضل ضلك ضمان سكر الدكانه هو عنوان التحرك الجديد اللي بيهدف لتوعيه المواطنين حول طريقه مواجهه الفساد بلبنان بلغ عن الفساد ليصير عندنا بلد فساد مثل الدكانه ونحن بدنا الفساد يفلس يضل في تبليغ عم نضلنا عم نعمل عمليات جديده بننزل عن المواطن هذه السياره وسيله تستخدمها جمعيه سكر الدكاني لجمع التبليغات حول الفساد كل يوم بالساعتين عم طالع فوق 60 تبليغ كل العالم محمس انه يصير تغيير معين هذا التغيير ببلش وقت الناس بتبلش تشارك بالتبليغات عن حالات الرشوه اللي عم تشوفها عملنا ويب سايت سكره.com في موبايل ابلكيشن سكرة بس ناخذ البلاغات بنجمعهم بنعرف باي اداره في اكثر شيء فساد الهدف منه انه نجمع داتا او معلومات ليصير فينا نعمل ضغط على الادارات الفاسده تيصير في اصلاحات لانه نحن بدنا اصلاحات من الجذور هذه الحملة منا دعاية عم نعملها بس رح تخلص بيومين ثلاثة رح نكمل فيها نفسنا طويل
So you can see a lot more of this happening today where people are trying to build social movements around kind of the issues and the corruption, all the problems in Lebanon. But, but there's still a place for brands to kind of celebrate that, that spirit of the Lebanese people. And to me, the, kind of the, the Johnny Walker brand, in a lot of ways, the walking man, symbolizes a lot of that Lebanese spirit. You know, the, the relentless man who walks through the rain, through the storms. He kind of walks around his obstacles and kind of always pushes on no matter what life throws in his way. And, and this brand has had a lot of success in Lebanon because of this kind of fighting spirit which the Lebanese people share. So some of you might remember during the, the 2006 war between Lebanon and Israel, the Israelis literally bombed the entire country. It wasn't just military targets. It was bridges. It was airports. It was fuel depots. It was anything was fair game. And sites like this weren't uncommon where they just bombed some of the most important strategic bridges like Nahr al-Kalb that connects north and south Lebanon. And so Johnny Walker, six days after the ceasefire, responded with this ad on the streets of Lebanon where you could see the broken bridge and the walking man kind of carrying on through this. And this actually captured into attention. I mean, it was featured in the New York Times and it got a lot of publicity. But where does Johnny Walker go from here? Like, how does it update itself for 2014, 2015 with all the problems we have today? إنها جمهورية العار. بعض علامات الدولة الفاشلة. العسكريين المخطوفين. In 2014, a dark cloud was hanging over Lebanon yet again. Media competed to paint a grim image of the future, and people followed, paralyzing the country. The Lebanese were forgetting what they are truly capable of. We needed to remind them and empower them to revive faith in themselves. We communicated a message. A resilient flame battles a menacing storm. We released the film during the grim 8 o'clock news and on social media. The flame in the Lebanese was awakened, and when they reacted, we were ready. A calligrapher brought their messages of resilience to life with fire. And we replied to each person individually with carefully crafted images signed with their names. We kept the engagement live for 20 nights, traveling all around the country and writing hundreds of people's messages in places where the Lebanese live and meet. The conversation was growing with each image shared on social media. And we amplified it by displaying new images every day on the streets and in dailies. People's messages of hope were dominating the conversation, except this time, it was the mass media that followed. Journalists were now talking about Lebanon's achievements instead of its failures, and the country's most-watched TV talk show started 2015 with an episode titled The Republic of Hope. <laughs> So yeah, so, so I am your typical Arab, and I've lived here my whole life. Um, and I've seen some shit. Um, you know, I've been woken up in my house in Palestine with Israeli soldiers banging on the door, trying to get in and take the young men away. I've, I've had Iraqi soldiers hold my parents at gunpoint during the invasion of Kuwait. And despite all the things that I've seen, 
I've never seen the Middle East as bad, as bad as it is today. And every year we think it couldn't possibly get worse in terms of the war, the violence, the sectarianism. We somehow managed to find a new low. Um, so it's a very difficult time. It's a very challenging time for us today as Arabs. But if I'd like to leave you with one word today, I'd like that word to be hope. Because I really do believe that things are going to get better. And, and I really do believe in the power of the internet and in social media to really transform our society. Because we have a young... Arab digital generation that is young and they're connected and they want to change the world and they're going to change the world in ways we can't even imagine yet. And this is still the Middle East. I mean, this is still the birthplace of religion. This is still the cradle of civilization. So as a Palestinian, I hope my country finds justice. As a Lebanese, I hope my country sees an end to the corruption and dysfunction in our country. And, and really as an Arab, I hope that we really do see positive change in the next few years. So, so that's my talk. Um, I, hope, I hope you share my views. Hope you like my talk. Um, and as an Arab, same way I said hello, I'll say goodbye and say assalamu alaikum rahmatullah wa barakatuh. Thank you. Thank you very much, Yusuf. I'm sure people do have some questions, so we've got about 15 minutes. Who wants to go first? Go on. No one wants to ask you anything controversial. Hi. I wouldn't miss just to say how impressed I was. Oh, I truly, you. truly enjoyed it. I, first of all, it was total novelty to me. And, and considering how much time I spend on social media, maybe that surprised me the most. That I'm completely ignorant in terms of that aspect of social media in the Middle East. And how did I manage to miss it? It was in English. Uh, it, was in, you know, it was clearly very publicized. I'm just wondering how did I miss it? And I'm asking this really not you to answer directly to me, but how do we miss this? How do we miss such a massive movement that is so close? Well, the things know? in Lebanon. Actually, yeah. most of this stuff yeah. I actually, was completely new to me. Yeah. And I wonder how did I miss such an echo not to reach me at all, although I'm in the area, so do I ignore it or do I just not circle or it's a... I'm just wondering now. I'm thinking loud with you, actually. I think it's a really good question. I think a big part of it is the fact that there's so much noise coming at us today. If you think about how noisy our lives have become in terms of you know, our mobile phones and kind of Instagram and Facebook and Snapchat and YouTube and Twitter, and it's all coming at us so much nowadays. It's amazing how, how as human beings we've just started to filter stuff. Like we just, we just don't even see things anymore. Like they just kind of just pass us by. I mean, one thing I've found anecdotally from my own experience is that the, the worst way to get my friends to respond to anything I say is to send them a Facebook message. Because Facebook is such a noisy place that you'll be like, uh, oh, message from Yusuf, uh, and then three weeks later, like, oh, shit, I didn't reply back to him, you know. So I think, you know, as people, really, it's never been noisier than it is today for us as consumers and as, as kind of people. Hanan. Hi, Yusuf. Um... What can we do as individuals, like on an individual level, in terms of participation in social media or to help any cause, mm. you know, whether it's on the Middle East level, on a country level, or on a religious level? Mm. If I want to participate, if I want to help, what can I do? Like, do I have to support a certain cause, or can I just do anything positive, in your uh, opinion? I think, I think that's a great question. I think we we've kind of gotten to this era of what we call slacktivism today, where it's become a lot easier to post something on Facebook. Be like, oh, I changed my picture to like me when I was a baby. I've done my bit to fight child abuse. No, you haven't. You know, so I think the reality is to try to actually, eat, you know, what you found was interesting about the most successful campaigns here is that they actually turned social media into real actionable life things. You know, you, you can't, 
you can't just tweet something in, out of existence. You have to actually get outside and do something about it. And so I think there's a lot of good charities. I think there's a lot of people in need right now around the, around the Middle East. And you know, beyond just kind of posting things and liking things and like expressing your anger, like go outside and do something. You know, there's a lot of good charities here in the UAE. Um, you know, that that need help. There's people all over all over the Middle East that need help today. Yes, ma'am. Scott. Now, your talk was excellent. Thank, Thank you very you. much. Now, I, uh, I'm, a, I'm a, a big believer that Facebook is making the world soft. We go on soft. there, we complain, we moan, and we waste lots of time where we're not out doing something. Now, what, about, what does it do with accountability? For example, there's, uh, I saw on uh, one of the Twitters something about Michelle Obama, they, they, America, okay? They, have, uh, they show a picture of uh, Ronald Reagan's wife, and they say she only had one paid employee. Then they show Bush's wife. She only had two paid employees. And then they show uh, you know, Michelle, uh, Obama. Michelle Obama, and they say she has 22 in paid employees, which, which I don't believe any of that. But it goes up there, and then you have thousands of people sharing it and posting all this misinformation. So how... How, how much worse is it going to get? Mm. You know, Donald Trump, that, that farce man <laughs> over there in America, put up on his Twitter, he asked his Twitter followers, should I speak at the debate? So he's asking his Twitter followers what he should, what he should be doing. So my, my, my question is, someone who's, I'm not a fan of social media, is how, what about the accountability? I think, I think you're right in a way, because I think this accountability, I, what it's done, I think, is... Because it's such a democratic channel and that anybody can have a voice and anybody can make a lot of noise on it, it's increased accountability in some ways because people are being forced to answer for certain things. But I think what's happened is that we are so inundated with stuff all the time now that we've actually become quite insensitive to it. You know, So like in the old days, if you saw like one picture of like a dead Syrian refugee, you'd be like, wow, that's awful. But when your Facebook feed is just full of them, you're like, oh, dead Syrian refugees, of course, and I'll see more of these tomorrow. And I think... One of the challenges today is the fact that the media and the accountability of media is kind of getting lost in the middle of all of this, you know. And so anything can become a story. Anything looks real. Anything becomes a fact. And so often you see stories go up on the internet like, oh, my God, this terrible thing happened. It's like, nope, that story's five years old. Or, oh, my God, this person did something. No, they actually didn't. And so it's, it's a weird one, isn't it? Because we're just – and we're getting to the point where we only listen to what we want to listen to. So, you know, either you listen to Fox News and you're right-wing and you believe in Donald Trump and all that, or you're left-wing and you don't want to know about any of that stuff and you want to watch NBC and ABC. And there's almost like no gap in the middle anymore. And even our kind of most cherished kind of news institutions, you know, CNN, BBC, Al Jazeera, everybody's got a spin, everybody's got an angle. So it's no wonder that things like, you know, parody websites like The Onion and the Pan-Arabia Inquirer are becoming so popular right now because everything is so ridiculous you know so when you read an article about something you're, you're not never really sure sometimes is it the Pan-Arabian choir or is this the reality of the Middle East so you know it's 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 mad yes ma'am yeah hi uh, thank you for your talk first mm. of all um, okay to understand my question I need to just share something so a while back like a couple of years back I started a parody video um, about UAE well, women who have this sort of Western um, mannerisms um, and 
uh, the video that I posted on YouTube, it went viral. And then the next day, my actress calls me up and tells me, take down the video because she's been getting calls from her family members that are saying, oh, you know, you're, you're, you're going viral. You need to get, take that video down. And people are following, him, uh, following uh, her to her house and stuff like that. So my question is, now a lot of the videos that you posted, a lot of the parodies and, and comedy um, YouTube video that you posted, it's mostly male dominant. Mm -hmm. So where do you see women in, like, in the Gulf or in the, in the Arab world going in terms of this whole, um, this whole social media movement? Mm -hmm. That's a really good question. I think... There's actually, there are some really good examples of women today who have actually become social media superstars. There's, one, there's a woman in Saudi Arabia, I can't remember her name, but again, massively popular, but she's always wearing a face veil, because, and she's like skateboarding and like doing all these really cool things all day. And I think, if anything, social media has actually really helped to bring down a lot of the, the barriers around that. Because you look today, you know, I mean, you look at your Instagram feed today, and suddenly you're starting to see, you know, kind of GCC women, you know, who are like showing themselves, doing things, shopping, having fun, whatever it might be. So, you know, this would be unthinkable a couple of years ago, the fact that like a woman would put her face and put her like private life so public on Instagram. So I think social media is actually really d changing that and really is breaking down a lot of those barriers. And you're seeing women becoming a lot more visible in the media because of social media, especially with things like Instagram and Snapchat, where suddenly every one of us has become a broadcaster. Thank you. Anyone else? I have a question for you, mate. Yes, mate. Some of the stats I really enjoyed, the usage is going up, and obviously that's consuming a lot of our time. What did we used to do with that time before? And is it a positive that we're consuming media, some decent content, a load of trash? Is it a positive that we're doing that, or should we be doing what we were doing before? It's a really good question, and I think it's kind of good or bad. It's here, and kind of this is, this is our new reality. Um, I'm a bit concerned about it, because I just find our attention spans are getting... This could just mean my anecdotal evidence, but I think our attention spans are getting shorter, and I think that need for microbursts of entertainment is becoming longer and longer. I mean, we're all guilty of it. Like, we stop at a traffic light, and we have to check our Instagram. And it's like, you're only here for 30 seconds, but even you can't just sit for 30 seconds. Like, get in an elevator today. Nobody is just standing in an elevator. Everybody's on their phones doing something. And it's really quite amazing how these kind of microbursts of... You know, our attention spans are getting shorter, and a need for that instant entertainment and gratification is only becoming more acute over time. So I think it's, I th I'm, I'm quite worried about it because I'm, I'm as guilty of it as anybody else. Do you think it's an addiction like drugs are? It is. Um, the interesting thing is there is some research now around it. Say like, why do people want to check their emails at three in the morning? Like what sort of idiot would do that? And what they've realized is that whatever you look at in terms of interactions, if it's a positive interaction, you'll always get a natural hit of dopamine in your system. And if it's a negative interaction, you'll always get a little hit of serotonin, which kind of angers you. Both are equally addictive as, as kind of hormones in our bodies. And so that's why people love sports, they love drugs, because it kind of triggers that dopamine inside your system. But the serotonin, the anger is just as, is just as much there. And so they've done research with rats where they'll put a rat in a cage, and once in a while, if the rat opens a little box, there'll be a, like a little sweet inside for him to eat. But the rat will just keep going back to the box, looking, looking, looking to see if there's something inside for it. And that's kind of what we do all day on social media. It's like we're just going to get this little hit of like familiarity, of excitement, of, of gratification, of validation. And we just do it over and over and over and over again all day. And we really are becoming so like our kind of level that we need to kind of catch that high is just getting higher and higher all the time. So I think it is quite worrying because 
the, the publishers are getting better and better at kind of tweaking that towards us now. But every time we go, there's a new bit of entertainment. There's a new bit of validation. There's a new hit of dopamine waiting for us every time we look at this stuff. And it's, it's absolutely terrifying. I have one more question for you. That's yes. okay. Where will we be 10 years from now? You've given us a real interesting mm. history of what's gone on and we've seen a lot. But, yeah. And some of it's almost frightening. You know, yeah. like how do I have more time to watch YouTube or to, you know, I only have that fragment of time at the lights yeah. you know where where where's it all going i think we're headed towards two things i think one the the ability to personalize content for us has never been stronger you know you look at facebook and every one of us has a different facebook that we look at because it's completely personalized to us and we're going to see a lot more of that going forward the other thing that i think we'll see a lot more of is the fact that like this phone is 50 times more powerful than iphone one so in seven years, this thing became 50 times more powerful. So project another 10 years in the future and think about the processing power that you'd be able to have like on the tip of your thumb. And I think you're going to see a lot, more, a lot less ownership of physical devices where screens and entertainment will be everywhere for us to pick up and look at just based on who we are and what we look at. So I think media, the availability of it, is going to become more and more pervasive over time where you know, even the physical ownership of devices and objects might even go away where there are just going to be objects and devices everywhere that know who we are and will just give us whatever we want all the time. Cool. Ladies and gentlemen, a big round of applause you. for Yusuf. Thank you very much, mate. Appreciate it. Thank you all very much for coming, for taking the time out of your day. Inner Talks 10 will be on the last Thursday of February, which I think is the 25th. I hope is the 25th. We'll send you details about that in due course. Have a fantastic day and a great weekend. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot to everyone for tuning in to this, another episode of the Inner Fight Podcast. Thanks also to the awesome Yusuf Tukan for his useful insights there, very entertaining, and making us all think about what's going on around us in the region, and also further across the world, if that's where you're sitting. Of course, you can check out Inner Talks 9 over on innerfight.com slash innertalks9. If you still have questions for Yusuf or questions that you'd like us to include on the Inner Fight podcast, please just mail them to us, winning at innerfight.com. We'd appreciate it if you take some time to hop over to iTunes and rate the podcast. And of course, don't forget, you can see that and all of our podcasts over on our YouTube channel. Till next time, take care. <laughs>